0: Welcome to the Planet and Health podcast. I'm Sawyer Hoffman, California Bar Licensed Attorney and Fitness Coach. On this show, we'll talk to people who are driving change in the areas of plant-forward food policy, business, personal growth, and a lot more to start a conversation about how we can move forward not only individually, but societally and legislatively as well. I hope you enjoy the show, and for more information about Planet and Health, please go to planetandhealth.org. Planet Health is a nonprofit that is funded by donors. If you believe in our work, I would invite you to make a donation to Planet Health so that we can continue helping people with our online web series and this podcast, as well as legislative changes. Thank you so much. All right, let's get into the show. Laura, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, we've talked many times in the past, but I, I just, I want to put this out there right before we start. It's just like, I feel like I learned something new every time we talk and I feel very inspired every time we talk. So I hope that that comes across in this conversation so that people can understand how much power we do have as citizens and also just how much knowledge that we don't have in as, as everyday people, um, you know, how much we're not given, you you kind of have to go out of your way to find. So um, I think you're a great source of that. So thank you for that.
1: Well, I find you very inspiring too, Sawyer.
0: Uh, I'm just a friendly guy. I think that's, it. <laughs> I think that's it. And I get excited by this kind of stuff. So it's easy for me to be friendly with people like you. Okay. So <laughs> now that here, we've uh, pumped each other up enough, um, I just want to ask what is Agriculture Fairness Alliance and how did it start?
1: So AFA is a lobbying organization, nonprofit, it's a 501c4. And it started uh, with Connie Spence, who's my co founder, and I founded it, uh, along with uh, some volunteers who helped us set it up and get it started. Um, We, we found each other because we were both looking at subsidies specifically animal ag subsidies and we were both at about the same time trying to f- put together the picture of like are is it really a problem is, and is it a problem we need to do something about and we both realized quickly yeah we need to do something about it so I was fundraising for a one-off crowdsource campaign to lobby in DC to level the playing field with animal ag subsidies
0: what year was this in
1: that would have been 2018. Okay, was when I started raising money for that campaign, and mm-hmm. somebody who contributed money said, "Hey, have you heard of this woman, Connie Spence? She's talking a lot about subsidies." So I just started joining her calls that she had set up, and I was in Italy at the time, so I had to wake up at 4 a.m. to join these calls. That's <laughs> hey, guys.
0: This is but the leader you can get behind.
1: <laughs> but it was exactly she was talking about the same stuff I was talking about so I mean it made sense for us to work together. So yeah. we were kind of collaborating behind the scenes while I went and did this like one-off lobbying thing which actually was the genesis of our AFAs mm-hmm. um legislation that we're lobbying for in DC right now which is to help farmers transition. So it started with that one-off yeah. campaign. Definitely going to um, talk
0: about that because that's very exciting. But um, before we do, um, I yeah, I think I agree. I think not a lot of people talk about subsidies or think about them. Um, I remember as I first went vegan five years ago, I I remember seeing some stuff about it, um, but I don't remember ever there being somebody uh, or any organizations very focused on it. And so I think that's why I got so excited when I came across your guys' organization because you guys were so. Zeroed in on trying to make it easier for people to go plant-based and for the world to to move in that direction, um, rather than just kind of shaming people for uh, you know whatever is hanging them up, you know. So I thought that was cool. Um, and and before we get into um, what the At Risk Farmer Transition Act is, and I, I know you might be changing the name too, so apologize right. if I get it wrong. Um, but I want to uh, start to define a little bit about the the policy landscape right now and Mm -hmm. so um start by maybe defining uh what the farm bill is and what what why that is important just just 30,000 foot view
1: (laughs) yeah the farm bill is the agriculture improvement act and it comes up for renewal typically every five years and it's a huge bill with 12 titles Mm -hmm. everything from commodity supports to forestry to conservation to horticulture to nutrition programs all all in this one bill
0: does anybody ever really vote against it
1: not really i mean people do vote against it but typically it passes because the the democrat legislators typically are all for um SNAP, which is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is formerly known as Food Stamps. Mm-hmm. And then the more red states, which are very rural, they're all for the subsidy programs, which provide protections for like cone, corn growers and soybean growers and oh. cattle ranchers. Um, so it's it's a big bill, like every year, about a hundred billion dollars or so is spent under the farm bill. It goes up and down because the nutrition program varies a lot depending on the economy at the time
0: mm, okay
1: but it could be like 60 billion dollars just going to nutrition in, in a given year or 30 billion. but
0: right. um, I remember reading that it has been trending upward um, the amount that's being taken out by the nutrition program.
1: Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, not, it's not like they say there's one amount that all the farm programs can have. The nutrition bill itself is mandatory funding and it doesn't have limits as far as I know. So the idea with mandatory funding is if an American citizen applies for that program and they qualify, they will get funded. Like there's no first come first serve. It's you qualify, you get money. Well, if 10 people sign up, then it's a really low budget. But if I don't know, 10 million people sign up, then it's, it's a big price tag.
0: That makes sense. And um, yeah, I can see why it's so volatile um, depending on how the economy is doing. Um, Okay. So that's the farm bill. And um, you talked about um, why you found it, you know, the reason you found Connie was because you guys had found this common interest in subsidies, right? And why, why did you feel that subsidies were so important to focus on in the first place?
1: I mean, I had a low grade fury just brewing every day because I had uh, recently decided to stop eating animals for many reasons, one of which was wanting to leave a uh, the earth in better shape to our <laughs> to the next generation than how we received it mm-hmm. and it just seemed the height of ridiculousness for us to be propping up a sector of the agriculture industry that is most to blame for a lot of the pollution. And, you know, people in that industry would say, Hey, you know, we just need to improve the ways we do this. Like there is a sustainable way of making beef or raising chickens, but I mean, really that kind of falls apart. You, you find better ways of doing the wrong thing ultimately. And I just thought, you know, as a taxpayer, I don't want my tax dollars supporting an industry that I'm trying to vote against with my consumer dollars. That just doesn't seem right. Like if that industry can't make it on its own, then maybe we should just let it downsize. But yeah. that's tough to do because the you know, like the beef sector is the largest ag sector in America. And that's right. even after three decades of people reducing their beef consumption.
0: Right. But, so. You know, so what you're saying is like, it would naturally, you know, as the product of environmental damage and reduced consumer uh, attention to it would naturally kind of taper off, but, but it's looking like the subsidies are keeping it propped up longer than it is, or, you know, that it, that it should be. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. If, if we want to be a society that's based on the free market and supply and demand, Well, then let's let that work. And why should a few industries get special treatment? And why is it? It's always the ones that aren't bearing the full cost of their Mm -hmm. extractive natures. So like fossil fuels, they were getting subsidies. Animal Mm agriculture is getting subsidies. You know what? They should be paying Mm -hmm. the treatment costs of their methane emissions and the true costs of the eutrophication downstream when they
0: and instead we are and it, and
1: it i mean and it instead we are
0: me, yeah and it, it strikes me as like um very counter uh intuitive what what that's happening is because like you have these right-wing people who are very supportive of it but yet claim to be very free market capitalist you know philosophy and yet you know, those two don't mix, you know, you can't be propping up an industry. um, I think,
1: I think a lot of people who feel who like have a conservative sensibility at their core, the core of their idealism, their, their moral compass. I think most when it comes, when I talk to people who would call themselves conservative and I talk about how much like the cattle ranchers, gotten subsidies last year which are just straight up handouts Mm -hmm. um they're like yeah that's not right i don't want my government paying cattle ranchers anybody if they can't compete in the free market on their own why -hmm. should we be handing them cash and other perks for example the center for biological diversity has a great pdf that you can google and find it's called i think it's like the um the true costs of grazing on public land, we -hmm. give these cattle ranchers like a 90, 93% discount versus market rates of allowing cattle to graze on our public prairie land. Mm -hmm. So you've got the forestry service and you've got the Bureau of Land Management, and both of those have millions of acres under management. And they just let cattle ranchers graze their cows for like a buck 35 per animal unit wow when the market price should be more like 20 dollars per animal unit or and and this is one example though
0: i mean you know you and i have had multiple conversations about how much assistance animal agriculture gets despite how much harm they do and obviously that's opposed to liberal ideals too because we're they're very much about I wouldn't even say I'm a liberal but you know very opposed to environmental destruction and things like that so um an externalizing costs of that so uh, it seems like idealistically it's it's opposed to what most people are saying right to to prop up these industries that are doing harm um, that don't really deserve to be propped up they don't they don't have the kind of demand like, we've been overproducing milk for how long now? Do you know this, the numbers on that? I don't know.
1: Well, there's an awful lot of cheese in federal warehouses. Let's just right. put it that way. <laughs> yeah,
0: the government cheese thing is a, is a saying for a reason, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. So that strikes me as, as bizarre. I mean, and I remember thinking about that when I first started thinking about these problems um, as bizarre. is because most, most of the people you talk to um, are, are not for subsidizing most of these things. And so it leads you to kind of the place where you guys are now, which is realizing how powerful lobbying is, right? Um,
1: yeah, I think implicit in what you're saying is the acknowledgement that the reason they're getting these subsidies is because they're lobbying for them,
0: right? And and that's why I love your strategy so much, right? Because it's it's actively saying, look, you know, we these these interested parties are are uh, already influencing policy. We need to we need to have a voice too. And, yeah um, yeah and and so um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that um, but but first maybe get into the differences between different types of subsidies bailouts crop insurance all that stuff could you go over like a brief description of, of like what a subsidy is a bailout is those kinds of things
1: Sure a lot of the subsidies in the farm bill are like yield protection programs. Mm-hmm. Title one is the commodity title which has the arc and plc which pretty much just say if you're producing a crop in a county and the yields for that county are particularly low in a year then you get paid a certain amount to make up for what they assume are going to be your low yields also um, one that's on prices if prices are below what's expected you get paid so it's kind of like um it keeps them from feeling the downward pressure of any market forces or or bad weather. Okay. So that's one. And that's about $6 billion a year on average. Sometimes it's like five that it pays out. It all depends on what the rates were. There are for-profit crop insurance companies. When farmers sign up for crop insurance through them, there are a bunch of different kinds of policies. Mm-hmm. And um, the taxpayer typically pays 60% of their premiums for the coverage. And then when insurance companies, there's something happens and they end up having to pay out a lot of claims, then Uncle Sam steps in and helps them out on that end too. And typically this is about five, $6 billion a year as well. So on any given year, just between those two programs, you've got 10 to $12 billion going out to the, to uh, the ag industry. And a lot of the a lot of the crops that are covered are things like like number one is always corn and then soybeans. And then you've got a bunch of other crops as well. Um, But as you know, a significant amount of soybeans and corn go to animal feed. So the subsidies you can assume are for the animal ag industry. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering how much of the uh, the farming sector is funded by, um, by subsidies, but also like what what percentage of it is animal ag related and, and what percentage of it is plant-based related? How big the companies are generally, like who, who are the, the ones getting the biggest sums of money? I assume it's the bigger players, right? The ones that are lobbying for it, that kind of thing.
1: When you look at the entire ag sector, net farm income on any given year runs around a hundred billion dollars a year. Wow. And in any given year, typically the total of subsidies is about 20 billion. Mm -hmm. So 20% of their income, their net income is coming from taxpayers. Wow. Last year, it was more like 45%, 40 or 45% were coming from taxpayers, because there were so many bailouts between the the trade war market facilitation program, and the Coronavirus um, bailouts, which I mean, obviously, we had to send people money for the pandemic. Um, But between those two things, um, subsidies and bailouts were about 53 billion. So that And then net farm income was like 122 billion, I think. So 53 of 122 was what came from the taxpayer.
0: So that's why you were saying, "Oh, I was going to share the screen, but let's let's not do that." Actually, dang, I I had your uh, AFA Instagram page up before, and there was a there was a graph that showed how much bailouts and subsidies had gone up. Um, Yeah last year because of COVID and the trade war um but I love your Instagram I think you guys do such a good job oh thanks saying, yeah I mean you guys work hard on it I've been a part of those conversations but
1: shout out you know, to Audrey
0: yeah she's, Audrey. she's
1: the social media master
0: um yeah but you guys have really great visual representations of okay how much is going to who how much is to used by livestock versus plant farmers you know and, um, we're trying
1: to we're trying to break it down into kind of easy to remember, uh, inf, inf- mm-hmm. infographics. So right. I'm glad that's coming across well. Yeah.
0: And you can <laughs> arm people with knowledge, um, which is really cool, especially when they go talk to their reps and stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, what I wanted to get into now was, so you so you realized all these things were going on in the market that we have. Virtually no control over as individuals um, because we aren't big business and we don't have the kind of money that that these guys have these um, these organizations these companies have. Um, and that's when I remember you talking about you found lobbying. So how did you come upon lobbying? What what were the most compelling arguments for for doing what you do now?
1: So I came across an organization called Lobbyists for Good, run by Billy. Delancey and um as we were talking about earlier I found them on him on Reddit he was -hmm. doing an AMA which is an an ask me anything and Mm. he he was getting torn apart by the Redditors you know blaming him for all the societal society's problems Um, a lot of heat (laughs) yeah and and so I crowdfunded five thousand dollars with him and I ended up going to DC and lobbying with him for three weeks. And in fact, Vice News covered us one day. So if you look up on YouTube, Vice News, how to hire your own lobbyist, you'll see me wearing this jacket. (laughs) Um, But the the thing that was fascinating, well, one little detail that I found fascinating was this. So it was clear, we weren't going to move any needles in just three weeks of lobbying. But, you know, we socialized the idea of farmer transitions to about 30 offices. And it, I learned a lot about what staffers care about. Mm. So during this time, Billy and I were talking about how, so he was kind of acting as our lobbyist. We had hired this guy, Ron, who was in the vice news video, but he, he wasn't really coordinating everything. He was helping us write the legislation. Oh, okay, And, Um, but Billy was saying, yeah, we need to hire like long-term, you know, as, as you keep raising money, we need to hire lobbyists. So we interviewed a few lobbyists, Mm -hmm. every single one within the first five minutes of meeting me would say, you know, people want to ban lobbying, but it'll never go away because it is a first amendment, right? We all have the right to petition the government for grievances. And there's nothing that says you can't hire somebody to make your arguments for you. Well, that's lobbying. Like it's just not going away.
0: Right. That's true. And that's, that's something that I've run into a lot of times is people just say, well, let's ban it. Let's ban it. But they don't often think about how little these Congress people know about, you know, all these legislators know about each individual sector and how to introduce bills that are going to be real and effective And um, bring about the kind of change that they want. That being said, it seems like the only people really effective at lobbying right now are big business.
1: I mean, yeah, the, the return on investment when you lobby is in the thousand times. So for every dollar you put into lobbying, if you have critical mass of a lobbying team, not just like one person going and talking to a few offices but you actually have a proper lobbying operation every Mm -hmm. dollar you put into that you can expect a thousand back wow
0: that's incredible and and kind of a no-brainer Lobbyists get paid too that's that's a big big bucket of change um
1: you you know you mentioned something um that i think is worth exploring a little bit Uh, the idea that policymakers rely on lobbyists for information to make decisions Uh Um, I personally think we should build up our basic science government agencies so that policymakers can go to those agencies for their information. And Uh we do have some stuff like that. We have the GAO, uh, Uh the, the government accountability office, and we have the library of Congress. They do, you know, Congress says, Hey, we want to report on this. They, they do the report. So there Uh is that. And then there's also wonks at USDA who they'll consult, but. They do rely on uh, lobbyists for a lot of information about, obviously, what businesses care about. And it, one of my pet peeves is when people go, they're, like, they want to flip the tables on the system and they're like, we need term limits. I'm like, that's the last thing we need. Like, <laughs> You want a bunch of green behind the gills legislators yeah. who are brand new. And then the lobbyists just feast on them. And they're like, here's what you need to know. And they're so overwhelmed and understaffed mm-hmm. and under um, underfunded. When yeah. I was in DC, I had on my Instagram, if you go to at Montani and you go way back, there's like this 30 second clip of me in a back room, not a back room office, but it was a legislative office that was like a office supply room. And I'm going, these guys have no budget, like the staffers are working for $50,000 a year, they're yeah. bringing in old timers with experience, and then they, they can't afford like they need a staff of 30 people. And yeah. they only have the budget for 10. And they're wow. hardly paying them. Like, how yeah. are they? How are they going to be effective? Swimming amongst these sharks who are super well funded? Right. where well, if those sharks just get one bite in, they get an ROI of a thousand bucks to their funder. It's right. just terrible. So like everybody who's listening to this, please stop calling for term limits. That's like <laughs> trying to nail in a screw. You, you need a screwdriver, not a hammer.
0: Yeah, well, no, that, that speaks to the, the necessary um, nature of your organization, which is to say, look, we need to stop trying to uproot the system because it's not going anywhere. What we need to do is play the game to win the game, you know, and change
1: of- the system while we go. But, yeah, yeah, we have to play the game while we're getting right.
0: Up. I don't mean win the game like let's make more money than them or something. I mean, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. it's let's level the playing field and make make policy fair so that we as taxpayers like how our money's being spent. And I realize there are a lot of other ways that yeah. our money is being spent that we're, we're not probably happy with but this is the one that we're focusing
0: on to that point i think that this is a great kind of pilot program in terms of grassroots movements coming up next to you know like unionizing you know pretty much against these big powerful corporations that kind of so far has just kind of like got to have their way with policy in, in a lot of ways um in a lot of industries um so i think that yeah i think what we're doing uh, educating people and then having AFA go in and lobby uh, is is huge for what's going to change and and how how policy is going to change too. So I really appreciate what you guys are doing.
1: Uh thanks. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm hoping we can be successful and we can build our lobbying army army further for the next farm bill. That's the plan. Right.
0: Yeah. Do you have how how big are your goals in that department?
1: We are aiming for five lobbyists by the end of this year. Wow. And that will have us well positioned to be lobbying for the farm bill over the next year as we add even more lobbyists.
0: Okay. And how are you funding that?
1: So we have four main ways. One is uh, how we're funding our one lobbyist right now, which is through member donations. So when people join up as an AFA member, the Mm. most, I think 80% of our members are giving $10 a month. Some are just giving a buck month and you know what, that's great because if you're a member, we can engage you when we need like letter writing campaigns or we need people in a particular district. If we know where you live, we can get you to write a, a letter that can be helpful. So um, we're happy to have people join, join on for a buck a month, but typically we ask for $10 a month. And Uh 100 percent of that money goes to the lobbying budget. So right now that pays for Riley O'Connor, who is our lobbyist in D.C. right now, trying to pass the um, trying to get USDA to implement a program that will help farmers transition to lower greenhouse gas crops that are more suitable to their land Mm -hmm. than like dealing with all these crazy environmental problems with having livestock on their land. So that's targeting small and mid-sized. but okay. so that's one is AFA members. So that's who fund most of our operations. Now we awesome. just set up a, a AFA champions club. Mm-hmm. And when we get right now, we have six champions and we're mm-hmm. gunning for 50. Once we have 50 people giving $200 a month,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we'll hire our next lobbyist. So we're on track for that. That will happen well before the end of the year, I hope. Wow. Um we have, Yeah, so I, Jane Velez Mitchell is going to have me on next week to oh, promote really? the Champion Club. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Awesome. She's a uber activist. I'm I that woman has like 78 hours in a day. I don't know <laughs> how she does everything. Some people just get it done. <laughs> she gets it done. Uh, the third is corporate sponsors. You may see on our website, we have two right now. And, um, you know, we're an all-volunteer crew, so we can only do so much at once. And uh, But we have Hungry Planet Foods and All Y'all's Foods. They're corporate sponsors. And we're reaching out to others this week and, you know, going forward. And we mm-hmm. hope to hire another full lobbyist through the corporate sponsorship program. I love so that. So anybody who's
0: is- getting a lobbyist because you know that that's your strategy and that's how you want to effectuate change. I love that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if anybody listening to this call has an inside track to decision makers at a, like a plant-based food company that might want to get some exposure on amongst AFA followers on all our social media, our newsletters, everything reach out to us. And we would love to add you as a corporate sponsor and, you know, sing your praises. Awesome. Uh, And then the fourth one is just private investors who will like silently give us a nice bucket of cash
0: donors. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for explaining that. And if you guys do want to find them, I'll, I'll uh, link their stuff at the bottom, but um, and in the show notes, but yeah, it's afa.farm. Correct. Is your website? Yeah.
1: It's agriculture fairness, but mm. we did a short, a short URL too. So afa.farm just because it's easier to type.
0: Got it. Okay, great. Well, thank you for explaining that. I think that's really good because, I mean, it shows people how just how grassroots you guys are. I mean, volunteer basis, trying to hire lobbyists lobbyists that, you know, care about the things that the people care about. Um, That's really exciting to me, you know, because if at any point you guys started doing stuff that people didn't care about or that wasn't meaningful to people, they would pull their money and, and it wouldn't be the same thing that it is. But the fact that people believe in you and they want the things that you're you're advocating for.
1: Yeah. And I really appreciate that people get the the reason why we need like a recurring monthly donation because you really can't do one-off lobbying. It's it's a full court press team effort. We need to hire more lobbyists, but we just need them in the game month after month talking to people. And it's always changing up who you want to talk to in D.C. and what's moving and, oh, keeping, keeping their ears open to hear for something moving that we can – possibly take action on mm-hmm. um, like it's it's month after month so I mm-hmm. would rather have somebody sign up for ten dollars a month than give us a hundred dollars and be done Wow That's- because then I can budget right, right.
0: yeah and yeah because because exactly and my first thought when you said that was yeah well these companies aren't taking breaks you know what I mean they got full-time lobbyists so yeah we should too um, you know the people that that care about this stuff should too. Um, that's great to know. Okay. And, um, so you mentioned a little bit about the initiative that you have going on right now, which is really exciting. And, and I know a little bit about, but, um, I would love for you to describe it, but, um, it's the at-risk farmer bill at this point is what you're calling it or what do you guys? Yeah. With?
1: So it's, it's a, we might rename it to something like the farmer opportunity mm-hmm. act Essentially, it's a voluntary program that would provide grants and assistance, technical advice to any farmer who wants to transition from a high environmental impact food production to a lower one. So like going from dairy to hazelnuts is the example that two of the farmers we're working with are going for. So we'll just use that example. Um. They both have dairy farms where they've they've both come to the conclusion that if they produce hazelnut plant-based protein, it will be much more harmonious with their land. They're not going to be contributing to uh, groundwater pollution at all. They're they're not going to be emitting methane, and it's just a much more sustainable, uh, restorative kind of farming than what they're doing right now.
0: Great. So, so it's a, it's a pilot program wherein you're going to be giving farmers resources to transition instead of just saying, you farmers, you guys are bad. Let's, or, or, you know, let's take away all your money, not give you anything. So I like that. That's really. Yeah.
1: It's just a lifeline for anybody who wants to grab it. And the dairy industry is in dire straits right now. So why not? Why, why give dairy farmers more money to keep doing what they're doing in a surplus market when they could, some of them have land that could transition to something that's, um, more sustainable on their land where they don't need big conservation loans, uh, to do extraordinary things on their lands to deal with the, the waste or the silage or, or the methane emissions, um, just change up what they're doing. And yeah, it's voluntary. It's for people who want to try something different. It's, I call it farm mobility. So Mm -hmm. the idea is like we're in a free market economy, right? And the whole idea is that business people, capitalists can pivot to like keeping an eye on, oh, what are the growing movements? And Mm -hmm. then they'll they'll retool operations to address that new growing lucrative segment. Well, Mm -hmm. right now it's only the big mega corporations that have the economies of scale to do that so like tyson food was investing in some plant-based products but the small players you know they're doing what they're doing they can't really like pivot on a dime so this would enable those who are interested in doing it to actually do it and oh by the way not only is it giving them uh improvements in profitability which is the goal but also improvements in being heroes for the the climate change story like this climate. The most climate smart policy is to have farmers growing food that's suitable for their land, not expand operations growing livestock that's not suitable for their land.
0: Right. I, I think that's a really good way to put it. And, and then, you know, in addition to that, I've, I've read um, in a lot of places that, you know, animal products account for maybe 18 percent of calories, but they use yeah. like six percent of farmland, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we can try to make all the arguments we want against making the change that we want, but ultimately everybody is benefited by it if we have the open-mindedness to try to move in that direction. But I think not just the open-mindedness, giving them the resources like you guys are proposing is going to help them feel encouraged to go ahead and do that. Like it's, it's going to feel like walking on a shaky bridge at first, right? Like, right. like all when we went vegan but like this is a bigger deal for them because this is their livelihoods it's um, Mm -hmm. a big part of who they are and um, in a dying industry though so if we could you know give them like you say it's a lifeline right
1: yeah Uh, yeah,
0: I I really like the way you phrase it and the way that you guys are thinking about the farmers as well as you know the earth and the people that are are consuming the products as well so thank you for for being so smart like that I think that's so I mean, like, honestly, because, yeah, like, I, you know, being a part of the vegan community, I know what it's like to be frustrated, but only seeing the narrative of, you know, kind of being diametrically opposed with farmers, right? And we're, we're, we're fighting against these farmers who are, you know, hurting animals, hurting the environment, whatever. But that you've come through with this solution that's going to help everybody. You know what I mean? And
1: it, yeah. And I mean, we're not, we're hardly the first to think of trans transforming farms. I mean, when we when I got started, another person people put us in touch with was uh, Renee Kingsonen of Rancher Advocacy Program. So she and her husband had a, you know, small cattle operation. Mm -hmm. And they both went vegan and made it into a sanctuary. And then she started getting into the non-profit she started a non-profit to help farmers transition so she's on our board and then there's mercy for animals doing transformation and there's a host of other programs but what we're doing is focusing on making sure that the federal government will provide some funds for that stuff so they don't have to just keep hitting up private donors they can tap these funds that will go to the farmer and um, they can help them transition i didn't
0: realize that i didn't realize that renee was on your board that's really cool oh, yeah. that's really cool she's she's such a great lady
1: she's a mover and a shaker
0: <laughs> <She's> so-, <laughs> um, so I was listening to your podcast with uh, veg talk which was a great episode by the way I encourage everybody to go listen to that because um, Laura killed it obviously um, she's very knowledgeable um, but I remember you talking about um, well one you had uh, intentions of creation of a pack eventually in the future mm-hmm and then also, you talked a little bit about HR one, and I don't think that's talked about very often in uh, vegan circles. So I, I thought maybe you could explain both of those things very briefly, if you'd like to.
1: Yeah, a PAC is just a an organization that can collect money and run a campaign for a politician. Um, they're supposed to be arm's length from the politician's campaign, <laughs> but yeah, you can fundraise for to put people in office. Um, that's kind of a next step right now. We're really focused on getting the next two, three lobbyists, and then we'll worry about that. I mean, probably should do it sooner than later because for the 2022 elections, Mm -hmm. but right now we're focused on building up our lobbying team. So that's the pack. And then the other thing is, uh, yeah, HR one, if passed, I mean, maybe it would remove the need to have a PAC because it's it's a bill called For the People Act, and it has a lot of provisions that reduce the amount of money that can just come from corporate and private sources for funding campaigns. It sets up public funding of elections. So if wow. I remember correctly, there was something where if you are running for office and You raise $100 from someone, the federal government will match that six for one. So that'll put $600 or maybe it's $500 and it's a total of 600, something like that into your campaign fund. It's like a lever for getting Mm -hmm. public funds. So you do have to demonstrate that you're raising money from the community, but all of a sudden, $5 donations are huge. $10 donations are huge, right? So you can kind of crowdfund that way. That would be Um,
0: profound. I mean, wow. I mean, because I mean, we've all heard about super PACs and how, you know, all these industry kind of big players will kind of band together and just fund these people that they put into office on purpose because they know they're sympathetic to the industry and everything. And so um, that that could be a potential um, really even the playing field in a lot of ways.
1: Um, yeah yeah I mean I think it's critical to get past that that would be very helpful and for me it's just a step in the right direction. It's not solving the problem but it's right. at least getting us along the way. there are other provisions but yeah look up HR1 okay. it's the the highest priority legislation introduced by the the house for any given Congress so it was introduced last. Congress because Democrats took the house. And Mm. that was the first thing they introduced was we want for the people act. And then I was devastated that people weren't talking about it. Like we were talking about all this other stuff. It's like people, this is the most important thing we should be passing right now. (laughs) yeah There was no hope because the Senate wouldn't have passed it. But this year, it could be passed.
0: Yeah. I would love that. And we should, we should talk about it more. I mean, we should uh, put that on our social media pages and stuff. You know, I, I, I need to hear about it more. I've, I've heard about it in the past, but not eloquently as you just put it, but um, I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't realize how important it was and also how likely it would be to, to change some of the stuff.
1: Yeah. You're inspiring. We should put it on our, our social media too. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Let's uh, do
0: it. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, some you know just briefly about some some common objections to shifting the world towards plant-based yeah. uh, farming and eating and everything. And I came across this article that um, I might pull up. Maybe I'll just read from it a little bit. What it is, it said it it basically is a, a, a counterpoint to the Eat Lancet report. It, it talks about how most of the crops that people are complaining about being used for animals. Are not suitable for humans anyway, and they're saying that you know most of the land used for animals isn't suitable for anything else but but land but but having animals um, or you know cattle grazing on it. Um, what's your take on that? Do you do you know anything about um, you know the common uh, objections to these these kinds of uh, recommendations?
1: One of the objections that was in that article you were talking about was that the food we grow that we feed to animals can't be fed to humans. And like, it's the part of the plant that can't be fed to humans. But in reality, we are purposefully growing soy and corn specifically to feed to animals. Mm -hmm. It's not even like that acreage you Mm -hmm. can identify as feed grade.
0: it wouldn't exist if it's not for these.
1: It, it, we wouldn't be planting it at all if we okay. weren't feeding these animals, right? So I, there are, are if you Google USDA uh-huh. coexistence fact sheets, uh-huh. you can find these like one and a half pagers on corn and on soybeans. And the reason why they put these out is because uh, you have gmo or biotech seed you have regular seed and then you have like organic farming these fact sheets provide information about how much there is of us each and it gives advice for keeping them separate and not cross-contaminating from field to field and that kind of thing that's where the coexistence comes from And in these fact sheets, they talk about how much corn, like what kind of seed is grown for animal feed and for soybeans and corn. And um, if you want to pull them up, I sent them to you The just the first paragraph for each just tells you everything you need to know for debunking that article.
0: Sure.
1: And it's all from the USDA, which I find if you use the USDA numbers like it's kind of. I
0: I, I really like that you do use those USDA numbers because, I mean, I have a feeling it's because you went and lobbied and know, you know, what facts and figures people care about. But I think it's really good that you're using the government's own numbers and their best science to say, look, even by your own account of this problem, this, you know, this thing still results is the logical conclusion. So I love that.
1: Yeah. And USDA puts out a ton of data. Like there's there's a lot of information there. Um, So in this fact sheet, this is the corn one. I don't know if it says exactly how much corn is used, but in the most recent analysis we did, we think 49% of corn goes to animal feed. Roughly Uh 40 42% goes to ethanol or biodiesel. The vast majority of corn that's grown is not. For human consumption, so the idea that, that they're just taking like the the parts of the kernel that are not digestible by humans and feeding those to animals and that's it—that's yeah. not what's going on.
0: Right. They're they're basically arguing, well, this is a byproduct anyway, but in reality, you're taking up land and resources and all this stuff to feed animals specifically, not just yeah.
1: because
0: it was already being produced. And to that point, um, you know, what do you say to people who, well, this is the only use for this land anyway? Uh,
1: well, I mean, well, we have a whole program. It, uh, well, we, the federal government has a conservation title, which has a program called CRP or the Conservation Resource Program. It's mm-hmm. where they take agricultural land and they put it out of commission and they pay people to let it rewild. And the reason they do that is because it increases biodiversity. It increases carbon storage because you're not tilling it up anymore. Mm. So yeah, if land doesn't need to be used for agriculture, just rewild it, whether that's prairie or forest or whatever's suitable for that area, you can just rewild it. What I'd like to see is that public land that we, we the taxpayer own, you know, the amber waves of grain Mm. that would be rewilded as well. But right now it's rented out to cattle ranchers for a song to just Mm -hmm. let their, as far as I can tell, it's contributing to that land, not sequestering as much carbon as it could, because it's not done in a very managed way. So, um, maybe that's changed over the past couple of years. So I, I haven't really been focusing on it, but
0: I'm listening to some plant proof podcasts where, um, talk about the, uh, with Nicholas Carter, who I was just discussing with you, he uh, gives facts and figures as to that. And it, yeah, it's rewilding is is by far and away the best thing we can do in terms of carbon sequestration. Uh, beyond that, cattle farming, especially, is the biggest driver of biodiversity loss and um, and habitat destruction. So it's like any way you slice it, it, it doesn't seem to look good for animal agriculture. And um, that's not to and- say everybody's evil but it's just like we, we do need to start shifting if we're going to make these changes by we need
1: it people who are profiting off the status quo are interested in preserving the status quo and they will invest in it. Preserving the status quo. So yeah. if they're able to graze their animals on public land for next to nothing, they're not going to want to see their their prices jack up to twenty bucks an animal unit when it was a buck thirty five before. And then mm-hmm. consider the wildlife services. Are you familiar with wildlife services? Mm-hmm. So this is, I think it's under Bureau of Land Management. Um, but the uh, rep, I forget what his name was. He said. Wildlife services is the most obscure uh, or what's the word um, secretive agency, even more than like military agencies. Really? And when you look into the numbers of how it's funded, it's, it's roughly half funded by taxpayers and half by cattle ranchers and wow. the management or the hits where like killing a, group of coyotes in some area because they're threatening the cows that are Mm -hmm. grazing nearby for a song they get called in by the cattle ranchers so even even the the killing agents of wildlife Mm -hmm. are half subsidized by our tax dollars Uh, it's uh, roughly half roughly half
0: wow that's that's news to me that's really sad actually um especially because you know as vegans we're thinking well we're not my conscience feels good because I'm not contributing directly to, um, you know, animal suffering, or or these kinds of things. Habitat destruction, um, you know, biodiversity loss, and yet they are. I had no idea that it was that secretive in the wildlife services. Unassuming. You don't think that there would be a whole lot of stuff going on that's that's unsavory, but um,
1: it's called predator defense. Yeah, wildlife uh, services sounds like oh, we're helping wildlife.
0: Smoking actually,
1: they just get called in to kill wildlife.
0: Wow, that's that's really disturbing. And and yeah, and you and I know that um, you know being protecting cattle and livestock is you know what they what they're mainly concerned about, but they don't care about the predators that are being taken out by these people. And so they what ends up happening is. The predators are reduced in an area or completely eliminated and therefore it throws off everything else in the ecosystem and so we got people saying well now the deer are overpopulating and we got to kill right. them so it's like it's just like we you know creating more and more problems downstream for us to deal with it's like same with pollution right yeah. so um, yeah the more ways that we that we try to uh, you know, invade nature and try to take it over and, you know, solve for X, Y, Z and, and the other, it seems like the more things can, that can go wrong and um, that we end up having to backtrack and, and do stuff. So, yeah, I think if we can reduce the amount of farmland that we need to feed a growing population, um, you know, and, and, and actually feed everybody instead of, um, you know, the, the rich, I think that would be huge. And I think that the first step in doing that is yet yeah, getting more more farmers to transition and saying, hey, look, sending them an olive branch and saying, look, we're not trying to put you out of business. We're trying to help you switch, and you guys are the ones that are going to be able to do that. You know, it's not we don't know anything about farming, so you know, we're, yeah. we're trying to create a a group of people, a team that to help you transition. But you know, us personally, we don't know. Thanks for explaining that though. That was really, that was really insightful. And and that's something that I didn't um, know, especially about the the wildlife services. So how can people contact and support you? You mentioned that you're, you have a website, uh, com. What else, what else can we do?
1: Yeah. If you go to afa.farm, there's a big button at the top. that says donate, hit that, and it'll show you all the different options like the AFA membership, champions club, et cetera. you can also go to get involved on the menu and volunteer. Um, I would just ask, like, if you're going to volunteer, make sure that you can um, give us at least like five to 10 hours a week, which I know is a big ask. But um, there's just a lot of projects that need owners. So um, I I could use some people coming on board who are willing to take ownership. (laughs) So just want to set expectations. Um, Also, you can sign up for amplifying our social media. So we have something called the Amplify Club. Um, I think I might need to link, link it from the front page, but you sign up. And when we post something like the stat we just posted today on social media, which was for every dollar that went to mushroom growers, $160 went to pig farmers. Wow. And that doesn't make sense with the relative sizes of those industries. Uh, If you wanted to have them at parity for the actual size of the industry, it should have been eight times more to mushroom farmers or eight times less, divided by eight for the pork farmers. Anyway, uh, so that's something we posted on Instagram, reddit facebook and linkedin today Mm -hmm. and then we send out to the amplify club links to all of those social those posts on the social media and then we just ask you to like you know share it to whoever makes sense to share it to tell people about what we're doing ask them to join uh at least subscribe to us on our our website and at least you'll get information you don't even have to be a member for that um yeah that's that's what i would encourage people to do
0: sending out info that's good and and that's helpful to people. Okay.
1: Yeah. And when, when you cut, when you join on as a member, we're starting to do more uh, we're going to start doing more events where we do like a Friday night pep rally we did last month where people came on and we talked about how to write letters to your reps for a particular um, initiative we had going and mm-hmm. we plan on doing that more often. What I really ideally want to have is all the members really develop their muscles with contacting their rep where they feel comfortable doing it, you know, practice doing it in a way where you know you're going to get heard. And mm-hmm. then also maybe writing letters to the editor. Like if, if you feel like writing is your thing and then like developing those muscles so that when it comes time for like major groundswell of action we can just recruit people and they're not going oh wait how do I because we've we've developed those muscles like we're a well-trained army right yeah so that's what I envision for the membership so joining even for a buck a month you can come in and join that effort and get trained up on some of that stuff
0: that's cool and it's like community and you guys are helping each other learn and grow and 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 kind of Effectuate change in the world together instead of you know in little islands and go over at your other island saying hey you know this might be a good idea and then you know nothing ever happens with it this is like a a collective thing I I really like that
1: yeah and we're really focused on DC and at risk farmer at the moment and developing our farm bill plan strategy right now but mm-hmm. members they get together and they you know they cross pollinate other things going on and I think that's awesome. Yeah. So I'm happy that's, to facilitate that.
0: Yeah, that's great, and that's a great attitude to have because I think that yeah, this is still a movement very much in its infancy, and I think that like I love the the aspect of of working you know with you and with other organizations who are just very much supportive of everything and very open with information and sources, and you know it's not a very competitive environment in the sense that like we're trying to step on each other you know it's very very helpful
1: yeah i'm very yes and oriented maybe to a false but i figure
0: (laughs) well i love it i think think it makes you um one of the coolest people that i know and uh, (laughs) i don't mean you spit out your water
1: i feel so sorry for you you need to get out more (laughs) but you know i I just i feel like i always
0: leave our conversations feeling inspired and also more knowledgeable about stuff so i really appreciate you Uh and uh, and everything you do, and so I want to say thank you for for spending this time with um, with me and educating me and and the people listening. And um, I hope to do it again soon. I mean, listen, uh, I'm going to have you on as often as I can and uh, as often as the founders will can stomach it because I think that you know, I every time I talk to you, we talk about something different and I learn something new. Like I swear. So
1: well, I got to say, every time I talk to you, it's just enjoyable from <laughs> start to finish. So. I,
0: I try to make I'm it. I'm happy to. I mean, these these are kind of heavy topics. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> um, much hope as we have, and and uh, momentum as we're gaining, it's still a big, big thing we're up against, you know, and and uh, a lot of issues to tackle. So, yeah. Well, I- and
1: I I love everything that your organization is doing. Planet and Health. I think you guys are doing some critical stuff with educating people about the merits of plant based uh, diets. And uh, one thing I really appreciate is how you all are such sticklers for the science, like you, you don't, you don't make anything up. I mean, you wouldn't, but you know, sometimes people exaggerate a little bit about the health benefits, and you don't need to, there's enough Data there. Just focus on what we know. And and just
0: like you with the USDA data, I mean, we're trying to use the most solid data we can, so that there's really no back and forth about well, that study wasn't funded, but you know what I mean. It's public information. It's very solid data. the The hierarchy of evidence is taken into account, and so there's not a whole lot of wiggle room in terms of is the science good. It's more about, okay, how do we get people to start implementing changes that are good for them and, and get them to understand that there's nothing to fear in plant-based eating. There's no, right. you're not going to shrivel up and become a hippie. Um, right. <laughs> good, I guess. Like,
1: yeah, if you want to, go for it. But
0: <laughs> you can have it on the trees you want. Um but yeah no I um yeah I, I appreciate that and thank you for saying that. So um
1: can I say one more thing about yeah. what I like about Planet in Health? <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Oh yeah, bring it on. I
1: I feel stronger going into the farm bill lobbying knowing that Planet in Health and you and Angie are mm-hmm. are on our team, because we are going to rely on you for the health, especially the health information to make sure that our arguments are rock solid, that they're persuasive, mm-hmm. that the narrative's set right. Um, yeah. uh, we are much better positioned with you in our corner. I'll so thank it. you for that.
0: I, absolutely. And I'm, I'm just glad that we could be of service. You know, um, We have a lot of very passionate health professionals are very knowledgeable um you know who come to us and are just like hey how can i help what can i do and we're like oh great like we can organize kind of the same way that you have all these volunteers we're just like what can i do how can i help and it's just it's cool to have different angles of coming at the same problems, right? So yeah,
1: yeah. Like when I asked Angie, okay, what's the what's like a big theme message that we can use? And she said, oh, the fiber crisis. Oh, yeah. And then it just right away, I thought, okay, yeah, that's some messaging we can start right now, Mm -hmm. socialize that get that into people's brains. And then in a year, we can start resonating with that thought that we've implanted the year before. I thought that was brilliant. So you may have noticed on our social media, we've had a few posts on the fiber crisis and we quoted her. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's it's because we're working together. It's so
0: important to raise awareness around that. And we're definitely going to talk about that more in the future. Um, and I know Angie's probably talking about it right now somewhere, but
1: um, <laughs> yeah, I bet she's, she's, like, <laughs> she's always talking about that. Uh, exactly.
0: Well, she's so passionate about it. She's a gastroenterologist. I mean, she sees everything. So
1: yeah. Anyways, <laughs> um,
0: yeah. Thank you Lauren, for coming on. And I'm excited to put this one up because I think people are going to get a lot out of it. So
1: uh, thanks for having me on Sawyer.
0: Absolutely. Anytime. I mean, when we do this for free all the time anyway, right. You know, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that are fun hopefully we can do one in person soon we can talk more about how everything's going with the lobbying efforts and getting a more lobbyists on board and everything so it's going to be fun to keep up with you as well